Well, we are uh, indeed going through uh, a few psalms. Uh, As you heard, uh, I will be going on a three-month sabbatical, not starting next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. And so um, uh, we will have uh, for pretty much uh, the entire three months, Dr. Stan Gale, uh, who has uh, preached for us before uh, in my absence here and there, will be filling in most of the, the slots uh, and then Jeff will be uh, filling in, what, two or, or three? Two? Two uh, during the summer. So Stan will do uh, most of them, and, and Jeff will do two. And Stan will be, um, and Jeff will be preaching and, and leading you through a sermon series in the book of James. So uh, really uh, so grateful for that, and, uh, and I trust that the Lord would, would really feed you well uh, in that. And so in the meantime, uh, we wanted to take some time, as we do every summer, to do some summer psalms. And so uh, this Sunday will be uh, one, and then next Sunday will be the last of that before you move into the, uh, the book of James. So we have been doing some psalms, and, uh, and this Sunday we will be looking at Psalm 19. So if you have uh, your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you as always to, to open them up and, and follow along as I read. And, uh, and keep them open because we'll be looking at specific words and, and phrases in this psalm. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one and, and follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, and if you use that Bible uh, underneath, uh, you'll find it there. It's on page 456 of that Bible. <clears throat> psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19 has always been a favorite psalm of many. It's one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis, who uh, most of you probably know as a Christian author, 
Uh, most of you probably know of him as the author of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, what some of you may not know about Lewis is that he uh, was actually professionally not a Christian apologist. Uh, he kind of did that in his spare time, which shows you how brilliant he was. Uh, his actual full-time job was an Oxford and Cambridge professor of medieval English literature, which means that he knew poetry pretty well. And in C.S. Lewis's opinion, uh, Psalm 19, he says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the history of the world. Psalm 19, uh, unlike some of the psalms that we have looked at, uh, can be somewhat easily divided. Perhaps the simplest division you can make is, uh, is to divide it in two. That uh, verses 1 to 6 uh, speak of God revealing himself in his world, and then the rest of it uh, is God revealing himself in his word. Uh, for the purposes of this sermon, I want to divide it into three ways. A little bit more of a division here. Verses 1 to 6, God's revelation in nature, or God revealing himself in his world. Verses 7 to 10, God's revelation in scripture, or in his word. And then I want to look at verses 11 through 14 as the human response to God's revelation. So let's look at the first part, God's revelation in nature. Verses 1 to 3 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. David is talking about God's revelation here. Specifically, he's looking at God's revelation in the sky. He's talking specifically about the sky. You can talk about nature in any uh, manifold way, but David is focusing on the sky. And he uses three uh, very carefully chosen words here uh, in, in this first uh, section. If you look at that first verse, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That word there, heavens, is the same word for heaven that is used in Genesis 1.1. So when it says God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it's the exact same word that, that David is using here. Similarly, uh, when he says, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, that word here translated sky is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 again in, in the creation in, in verses 6 to 8. There, a lot of times our, 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 our Bibles will translate that word something like an expanse, where God said, let there be an expanse or something like that. Here, it's translated as the sky above. Same word, though. And then lastly, uh, the way that David describes God here in verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word that he uses there for God is El, which is the sort of the simplest uh, way that you could refer to God in the Bible, and it's very similar to the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it there calls God Elohim. And so I think David is not only uh, reflecting on the creation, but he's purposefully taking us back to the creation of the world. 
He's speaking of God here as the creator, as the almighty creator, the majestic one. And so he wants us to hearken back to Genesis 1 where God in his almighty power spoke everything into existence. It was not, and then it came to be solely by his power. And what David, I think, is saying here is that God's creation, which he one time spoke into existence, now, in a sense, speaks of him. The creation that he at one time spoke into existence now speaks of him. Look at, look at how, he, how he describes this. He says, the heavens declare. You could translate that, the heavens make known. Or the heavens specifically, oftentimes when that word is used, it, it provides a written record of. The heavens provide a written record of the glory of the creator God. When he says, the sky above proclaims, he's, he's using a word that means it gives evidence of, it provides an explanation of, it gives an argument of God's handiwork, David says. One Old Testament scholar says the expanse, or that sky above, he says it suggests the night sky. So if we take the heavens, which is the heavens declare or make known, as the sky by day, then for David, the vastness of the sky by day points to El, God and his greatness, and the night sky points to God's divine workmanship. And notice David specifically goes into talking about day and night. Day to day, this, this immense sky, it pours out or gushes speech. Night to night, it reveals or makes known knowledge. David is saying here, look, the sky, just this one small part of creation that I'm talking about, whether during the day or at night, whenever you look at it, the sky is screaming out, God made me. You may remember the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John where uh, the first half of the book is called the Book of Signs. There, John speaks of Jesus coming and performing sign after sign after sign, and they were magnificent signs, such as taking the molecules of water and changing them into the molecules of wine, something that only the Creator could do. And John was saying these things were signs. It isn't so much that you just looked at the, the water turned into wine and say, wow, that's amazing. Can I have some of that? The point is, you look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. Who is this guy? Right? You look beyond the, the greatness of the thing itself to the person who did it. And that's what David is saying. The sky is like a huge sign there, staring us in the face, pointing us not only when we look up and say, wow, what an amazing night sky. Kids, come out. Look at that. You see Orion up there? All of these things. When you're looking at that, you say, can you believe God did all of this? That's, that's what it does. Now, how does it do it? Well, David says it, it's not screaming this audibly. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Now, our ESV translation is, I think, a little, it's, it's poetic sounding, but it's a little weird too in, in, the, in the way that they translated it. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Again, it sounds very poetic. 
But another translation, and, and one that I think might make more sense to us as far as what David's arguing, is there is no speech and there are no words. Their voice is not heard. David is saying, yes, the sky is screaming, God made me, but not with a voice, not with words. Again, like Jesus, his signs made a visual argument for Jesus' divinity. So the, the sky, or we can just expand it to the creation, makes a visible argument for the existence of God. And it's not subtle. It's not like David is saying, hey, if you've ever had the chance to see Halley's Comet, you would know that God exists. He's not pointing to something like a solar eclipse, something that maybe if you slept in that day, you, you might miss. He's saying, this thing is in your face every day of your life. You can't miss it. He's saying God puts his creation on display for everyone at all times. Look at verses 4 to 6. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. The sky, in other words, can be seen from anywhere on earth. Where are you going to stand on earth and not look up, look up and not see the sky? God's given it to everyone. And notice here, when he starts talking about the universality of God's uh, revealed, uh, his, his revelation in, in nature, he then goes to the sun, which again is seen by everyone, right? The sun, he says, no, notice he says the sky here, um, this, this expanse, he says it contains, he, again, very poetic language, the sky contains a tent. And into this tent, the sun sometimes goes. He's, he's talking about how, you know, we, we have the, the rising and the setting of the sun, and, and the, though the sun is still there, it doesn't disappear, it poetically, again, goes into a tent, and we have the night sky. But look at what, how he describes this. After the sun spends the night inside this tent, he then describes the sun in two ways using personification, right? He says, though the sun, after it spends the night in the tent, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, which probably most of you have been, when the bridegroom comes out of whatever room he's been getting ready in, and he stands at the front waiting for his bride, does he usually have a look of gloom and doom on his face? I mean, if he does, he probably ought not be getting married. Uh, there's something wrong, right? When the bridegroom comes out of his chamber, he's excited. This is the greatest day of his life. He can't wait to see his bride walking down the aisle. And, and how does the sun come out? After the sun comes out of its tent, it's, it's not barely there. Have you ever watched a sunrise? When, when we go to uh, Ocean City, Maryland, we, we have a... Um, our place is right on the water, and, and as tired as I am, as late as I may have gone to bed the night before, or as horrible a night's sleep as I may have gotten in that terrible bed that we sleep in, uh, I set my alarm, uh, you know, 10 minutes before sunrise so that I can be down on the water to see the sun come up because it's that 
wonderful to see. The sun does not subtly come out. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. Similarly, the sun runs its course with joy like a strong man. Paul, uh, I mean, David here is picturing like an Olympic runner who with joy or like, you know, uh, um, what's his name from Chariots of Fire? Uh, Little, Eric Little. Remember, he ran with joy the course set before. That's the sun. The sun comes out. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and then it, the sun runs the entire course uh, until he again goes into his tent uh, for, for, for sleeping. But, but the point is, David says, it, the movement of the sun is from sunrise to sunset, and the sun faithfully every day runs its course from morning to evening. There isn't a time when the sun gets halfway through its course and peters out. It doesn't decide to, you know, have a supernova. Or if it did, we wouldn't be here. And it does this day after day after day. And so David is pointing to the universality of the sky and the sun. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. David's point is this. All human beings have the sky. All human beings have the sun. And both the sky and the sun give irrefutable evidence to God's existence. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, just thinking about the glory of God in the sky alone, I was thinking about how busy our lives are and uh, just how many distractions we have. Uh, I think most of us, uh, if you're like me, I mean, I've read uh, probably in this year alone about three books on productivity, trying to stay away from distractions and, and kind of do what's most important, you know, uh, put away the tyranny of the urgent and, and kind of focus on the things that most need to be done, all of those things. And, and the reason those books are all such huge sellers is because we are all so often distracted and pulled away by a million things vying for our attention. And with the advent of smartphones, how many of us literally have our heads down the entire day? It's amazing how many people you see walking the streets or, you know, you see kids standing at the bus stop now. When I was at the bus stop, I talked to my friends. Now I go past, past the bus stop and they're all standing within one foot of each other like this not talking. How often, Christian, have you taken just five minutes of your day and put away everything else and just look around at the magnificence of creation? Sometimes I love to just lay on our trampoline and I'll take Eva out there with me and I'll just point out all of the magnificence of creation around us. Take the time to do that, you know, uh, I was speaking of Ocean City. We were there one of these summers, and I was sort of doing that, taking in the, the grandeur of, of the waves and, and just the everything around, the, the warm sand between my toes and the breeze and the birds uh, crying, and, and, and even we saw some dolphins jumping out of the, the water, you know, some yards out. And I looked to my right, and there are two teenage girls just as I was thinking, how magnificent is this creation? To my right were two teenage girls that had their heads in their phones the entire time we were there. I thought, you're on the beach and you still can't stop looking at a screen. 
to see wonderful things. Well, David says that the sky screams God's creation. God has revealed himself clearly, and he has revealed himself universally. The Belgic Confession, which we confessed earlier, says, look, God is invisible. God is eternal. He is simple, and he's uh, all of these things that we are not. Simple doesn't mean God is not complex. It just means God is all of his attributes at once, and if God ever lost any part of himself, he would cease to be God. That's not true for us. Uh, we can lose things and lose attributes and still be us, but not for God. The Belgian Confession says, look, how, how do we know a God like this? Well, we know him, it says, by two means. First, by creation, which I love the way the Belgian Confession, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book. The Belgian Confession is hearkening back to Romans chapter 1. You can even see that in it. Some of you read Romans 1 when we were reciting it. Well, Paul was most likely, who wrote Romans 1, thinking of Psalm 19 when he wrote Romans 1. Or you can absolutely see the connection there. Let's put it that way. Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Paul is saying God is clearly perceived through what has been made. Exactly what David is saying here at the beginning of Psalm 19. What David is saying is that creation bears the marks of God's handiwork. As the father of six kids, sometimes I can look at the handiwork that is left behind, and if it's generic enough, like a cereal bowl that was left out, I don't, I'm not positive who did that. But most of the time, I would say 80% of the time, I can look at the handiwork that's left there and I know who did it. I'm not going to walk by a laptop that's been left open with some kind of crazy graph some amazing design on this graph that was the, the result of some calculus problem and think Eva must have done that. Similarly, I'm not going to walk by a painting of a horse and think Luke did it. When I see the handiwork, I know who did it. The point is that when we look at creation, there is no mistaking who did it. Who, who would ever look at anything in creation and turn to their fellow human being and say, did you do that? I mean, we wouldn't even do that with, think of the greatest artist and craftsman the world has ever known. Who among us would, would even tap Leonardo da Vinci on the shoulder and say, did you paint that sky? No, of course not. Of course not. We, we would never think to do that. And yet, 
even though we know that that kind of a question would be completely ridiculous, such that we would never even bother asking it, we go ten steps further down the insane path and look at creation and say, nobody did it. The greatest human artist in the world could not do it, and so nothing did it. It created itself. It came from nothing. Why do we say that? Is it because we're stupid? No. Paul says it's because we're sinful. Scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Fool means godless or unbeliever. Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what Scripture is telling us is that even though God has made himself clearly known, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, we say that he doesn't because we don't want him to, not because we don't know him to. Which means that we are in danger. We are in danger and we need to be saved. Which means that we need something more than nature to save us. So God gave us more. And this is in verses 7 to 10, God's revelation in Scripture. Now notice there are huge differences here between verses 1 to 6 and 7 and 10. 7 and 10, verses 7 to 10, we see here that, that David uses six different terms to describe God's Word. You see here he uses law, the law of the Lord, he uses the testimony, the precepts. You see that. You just go through it. There are six of these, six terms, different terms that he uses for God's word. And then you see next to that, he uses six adjectives to describe God's word. The law is perfect. The testimony is sure. The precepts are right. So he's, he's just going down the line and, and you see these parallels. And then he gives six blessings that come from understanding and keeping this word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So you see how, how he's just going down that way. Now, when you compare this second half to that first half, verses 1 to 6, there are other striking differences. First of all, notice that David changes his wording for who God is. In 1 to 6, he uses the word for the God of creation, El. In 7 to 10, he, he never uses that word anymore. In 7 to 10, and including verse 14, he uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. We say that in all capitals, Lord, L-O-R-D. And furthermore, he doesn't only say it once. If you, again, from verses 1 to 6, he uses 
God, or El, one time. But from 7 to 14, he uses Yahweh seven times. You see this drastic difference. David is now not only speaking, uh, it's the same God, obviously. He's not speaking of two separate gods. He's describing them in two functions that God has. God is, on the one hand, the almighty creator, and he is, on the other hand, the covenant-saving God who chooses people and rescues them from the darkness like he did with Abraham. It was Yahweh, the Lord, who called Abraham to himself. But maybe the most striking difference in these two sections between David's description of God's general revelation in 1 to 6 and his description of God's special revelation in verses 7 to 14 is how transformative God's word is. It, in verses 1 to 6, really, uh, you don't get any kind of transformation happening. The only thing you see there is that, is that creation screams, God made me. But, but there's no there's no transformation. There, there's nothing that happens in a human heart by knowing that God created everything. That doesn't happen until you get to God's Word. See, the creation reveals God, but the Scriptures change us. They both reveal God. Spurgeon said this, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work, and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. But there's one key difference. Though they both reveal God, the Belgic Confession that we quoted earlier, it describes the difference. The Belgic Confession says, yes, like, you know, nature loudly proclaims, God made me. But when it gets to Scripture, it says, God makes himself even more clearly and more fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. It is the word of God that leads us to salvation. Look at David's description of God's word. It's almost as if he's holding up God's word as a diamond and he's turning it around in his hand and, and looking at different facets, different sides, and, and how each one sparkles in a different way. He says, God's word is a law that is perfect, and it revives the soul. It is a testimony that is sure, and it makes wise the simple. It contains precepts that are right, and they rejoice the heart. It contains commandments that are pure, and they enlighten the eyes. It produces fear that is clean and that endures forever. It contains rules that are true and righteous altogether. Now, I don't have time to go through each one of these, or we'd be here for six sermons. But let's just focus today on the first one. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I mean, right away we see that though David is saying, well, literally it says the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. The Torah of Yahweh. When the Scriptures speak of the law, I think we can see it this way, that 
Oftentimes, it's speaking of the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, or it's speaking of a large part of it. But even if you want to look at the Torah in a more precise way as the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote, then it's interesting that David calls it the Torah of Yahweh. He knew Moses wrote the first five books, but David isn't even giving him the authorship. Moses wrote the first five books, but God authored the first five books. And this can be said about any book of the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. It's all breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men wrote Scripture, but God authored it. And that's why it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. This Hebrew word, translated here perfect, it probably more uh, specifically means it lacks nothing. It's complete. It's whole. The Scripture is from God, and it is complete, and it's whole, and that's why, he says, the law of the Lord revives the soul. The Hebrew word here that's translated revives, more specifically, more precisely, can maybe be thought of as it turns back the soul. It turns back. You think of repentance. Repentance is stopping to walk one way and turning around and going the other way. David is saying that this perfect law from God is so complete that when we enter into this law, it turns back the soul. We are sinners. We are sinners. We are rebels. We're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Our natural tendency from birth is to turn away from God and do what we want, which is why we need this word to turn our souls back to God and walking to Him. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible tells us that we are sinners and that our deepest lack is not a lack of knowledge. Our deepest lack is a lack of holiness and of righteousness. And we need our souls turned back to God. And what is the thing that can turn our souls back to God? Not nature, but Scripture. David describes Scripture in such amazing language. Christian, think about the incomparable resource that God has given us here for guidance through life on this earth. David, David says that God's Word, this Scripture, is more valuable than the most fine gold. He says that this scripture, this word of God, is more satisfying than honey from the honeycomb. Or if you want to put it in today's language, David would say, this Bible is more 
important to me than any temporary security that this world could offer. This book is sweeter to me and more exciting to me than any temporary pleasure that this world could offer. Christian, is is that the way you think of this book? Be honest. Do you think of your Bible as more to you, worth more to you than any riches that someone could offer you in this world? Do you think of this book as sweeter and more exciting to you than any pleasure that anyone could offer you in this world? And if you don't think of it that way, then as oftentimes I don't either, then I would urge you to ask God that he would make it so in your life. That he would give to you a love for this word that David is describing here. How many times, Christian, how many times do we fall for the lie, as Adam and Eve did, that we ought to go after temporary security at the expense of God's word? Or that we ought to go after temporary pleasure at the expense of God's word? Brothers and sisters, God made us. He knows the manual. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We think we know what we want in life, but he tells us what we need in life. And how foolish of us when we walk away from what he tells us we need to embrace what we think we want in our ignorance. It's impossible. It's impossible that we would know better than God what we need and how we ought to live. And yet, sadly, that's what we often do. We as sinful humans not only look at the magnificence of creation and say, no one created that, we also look at the wisdom of the Bible and say, I know better than that. And how how have we suffered as a society for doing so? How many more weeks do we have to go through like the one we just went through this past week and the week before that? And all you do is just go back the week before that and the week before that. Some are worse than others, but they're all bad. There isn't a week that goes by that that we don't see that this world is full of sorrow and sin. And yet we keep suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness to go after what we want. If you doubt me that this book is written by God, that the law that's found in here is written by God, ask yourself, what would our world be like if everyone on it perfectly followed the Ten Commandments? I'll tell you what it would be like. We wouldn't need one police officer. We wouldn't need one military. We would have no divorce. We would have no racism. We would have no injustice. If everyone in our world, perfectly followed the Ten Commandments, our world would be completely different. And it would be perfect. Christian, is there 
any sense that you have that if everyone on this world followed the Ten Commandments that we would be any happier? Does the question even need to be asked? And yet as Christians who know better, how many times do we turn away from this word and embrace the world's lies? Well, that brings us to a proper human response in verses 11 to 14. You see here how it's amazing, I think, that that here David is proclaiming the glories of God's word, how majestic God's revelation is, how it uh, just makes your heart sing and enlightens the eyes and and does all of these things. And yet, after after meditating on the profundity of God's word and on the majesty of God's revelation, how does David end the psalm? He doesn't end with some recognition that he's done this. He doesn't end by saying, Lord, thank you that I always follow your word. Thank you that my life is completely happy. And that even though everyone else is is rejecting your revelation, that I have perfectly followed it. No, look look at what he says. I mean, after meditating on the wonder of God's word, he, he starts talking about his sin and how he needs to be forgiven of his great transgressions. Sinclair Ferguson says this, we read the book of nature, but the book of scripture reads us. Scripture tells us how we ought to live. It gives us a law, and if we all perfectly followed that law, we would all be perfectly happy. That's true. But the more that we get to know this law as sinners, those awaiting glorification, the more we realize that that if our deepest lack is a lack of holiness, then our deepest need is not more law. Our deepest need is that of a Redeemer. Notice David's response. David David is admitting, this is a man after God's own heart, he's admitting he's so bad off that he can't even discern his errors. Those are the like unintentional sins, errors. Who can discern them? He can't even discern that. David says his sin runs so deeply that he has both hidden faults and presumptuous sins. We might call them sins of omission, that we don't do what we ought to do, and sins of commission, that we do what we ought not to do. We, we have both of those constantly in our lives. And David essentially concludes here by saying, please, Lord, please declare me innocent. Please keep me from sin. Please, Lord, let sin not have dominion over me. I need your help, Lord. I need you to be my rock, and I need you to be my redeemer. And that's what's so amazing about this psalm is that it tells us that the God who is our creator and our lawgiver and our judge is the same God who is our rock and our redeemer. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he proved that he was this God in every way possible. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he proved that he was the God of creation. In many ways. I mean, just think of when he calmed the wind and the waves with his voice. Or when he healed a withered hand. So many times he proved that he was the God over the atoms of this universe. 
And Jesus as well proved that he was the God not only of the creation of the world, but of this word. As when he was 12 years old, he was tying these theological giants into knots. And when he walked around and explained God's word, the people said, he speaks of one who has authority like we have never heard before. Jesus would begin his statements with, amen, amen. I tell you the truth. Jesus is not only the God of creation, but the God of Scripture. And if God came to earth, that's what we would expect. Jesus was the Word, the Word of God through whom the world was created. And if God came to earth, we would expect this God to exercise immense power, such as the world has never seen. And Jesus did. And if God came to earth, we would expect this God who came to earth to exercise immense authority, the likes of which this world has never seen. And Jesus did that as well. But you see, what David foretold in Psalm 19 is what we might not expect. That if God came to earth, we would not only see immense power and authority, but we would see immense love and forgiveness, the likes of which the world has never seen. And that's what we saw on the cross. You know, going back to the beginning of this psalm, and I'll close with this. It's interesting that David says, day after day after day, the sun leaves its tent, and it rises like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and it goes from sunrise to sunset, never stopping its course. As I thought about that this week, I thought, there was one day. There was one day, and it, and it happened at the strangest time. It, it happened at noon, when the sun is shining at its brightest. When it seemed as though the sun entered into its tent again. When it seemed as though the night sky filled the day sky from noon to three. That was the day that this God hung on the cross. God's revelation, His general revelation of creation and His special revelation of the Word incarnate were both silenced on that day. And that was the day that God our Creator became God our Rock and our Redeemer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for reminding us and, and challenging us, Lord, that, that we need to look to your creation and to your Word and remember who you are. Thank you for reminding us that we need to live our lives by the guidance of your word, but Father, more than anything else, thank you for reminding us that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We pray that you would impress that upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.